The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, well, we're back to our study of our confession, and uh, we did the first half of chapter 30 on the Lord's Supper, so we're going to finish out chapter 30 this morning, and then next time we will go back uh, to finish chapter 26, I believe I left off in chapter 26 somewhere. So uh, we're hopping around a bit, but I didn't want to have two unfinished chapters, so we'll finish this one out before uh, before we go back. Um, so uh, some of you attended uh, the memorial service for Pastor Farisa's uh, mom on Friday, and you got, uh, a, it was like a little field trip to learn about some of the things we're going to talk about today with regard to uh, the Roman Catholic views on the Lord's Supper. So I might reference uh, some of those uh, elements just to um, to kind of explain exactly what's going on. Uh, some of it, if you're not used to that, and, and quite honestly, many who are in the Roman Catholic Church don't even understand exactly what's going on as it's going on. So um, we'll get into a little bit of that and explain it uh, this morning. So just as a refresher, we covered those first uh, four paragraphs already. So this morning we're going to look at paragraph five, the elements of the Lord's Supper. Six, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Seven, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And finally, paragraph eight, the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. So paragraph five, the elements of the Lord's Supper. Our confession says the outward elements in this ordinance duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ have such relation to him crucified as that truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent. In other words, the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. Now, again, and I say this every time, we need to remember the historical context, uh, context here. Um, the writers of our confession and of the Westminster and of the Savoy Declaration all uh, in agreement on these issues, dealing with the errors primarily of Roman Catholicism. However, we'll see some of the other views with regard to the Lord's Supper as well. And so this paragraph is dealing with those actual elements that we use in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record Jesus' statement after blessing and breaking the bread and giving it to the disciples at the Last Supper when he said, take, eat, this is my body. In Matthew 2.26, uh, Mark 14.22 says, take, this is my body. And then Luke 22 says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course, the Apostle Paul repeats all of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So the phrase in question in the Lord's Supper debate is the phrase, this is my body, or this is my blood. What does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? And after all these years, it turns out 
that uh, Bill Clinton was correct when he asked what depends what your definition of is is. That's really what's at debate. The English word is is in the to be form. And so the word can be used in two different ways. It can mean this equals my body. So this bread you're eating is my body. They equal one another. The other is this represents my body. So an example of this would be like when Jesus says, I am the vine. Well, I've never seen anyone try to argue that Jesus means he is literally a vine or I am the door in Revelation. Well, no one has tried to argue that he is literally a door, but in this instance, the argument is uh, that he literally means that this bread is my body, this wine is my blood. The early Romans did not understand what the Christians were doing when they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and they even accused them of cannibalism because of the language that's being used to describe it. Even amongst the church fathers, Matheson explains, some appear to have been using such language in a more literal sense, while others appear to have a more figurative intent. And so this debate is not, uh, it, it wasn't something that just came up during the Reformation time period. This is a historical debate that goes back even to the church fathers. Now, both understandings of the word is were developed into two distinct ways of understanding the Lord's Supper, and within those two ways of understanding, and I'll break this down, I know it's a lot to keep track of, um, there are two schools of thought. So really, you have four distinct views uh, about the Lord's Supper. There are a few more ideas, but there's four primary views. The particular Baptists, the Reformed Baptists, they held to the Reformed view of the elements of the Lord's Supper, explaining that the elements represent realities, but in and of themselves, the elements remain bread and wine. They are simply what they appear to be. And so for us, and for most people, this is an obvious conclusion. And so here, as we read this paragraph again, the intent is to refute the Roman Catholic error, and that is the error of transubstantiation. And we'll see more about that in uh, paragraph six as well. But this also deals with uh, the Lutheran error of consubstantiation. Now, both of these positions understand the elements of the Lord's Supper uh, introducing a true physical presence of Christ in the elements. And so while the elements can be and, and, and often are referred to the body and blood of Christ, the Reformed view, the particular Baptist view, and really the Protestant view on the whole, is that they are not nor do they ever actually become the body and blood of Christ. <clears throat> and so in that sense, Referring back to Matheson's quote, we understand that the elements uh, being referred to are being referred to figuratively because they represent a reality that is being remembered in the Lord's Supper, but they still remain only bread and wine as they were before, as the confession states. So 
I think it's useful for us to look at the four views before we go on, and then we'll uh, spend more time looking um, at transubstantiation because that was the primary error that they were dealing with. So the two literal presence views are transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic position. And the belief is that the, the, there is a conversion of the whole substance of the bread and wine into the whole substance of the body and blood of Christ. And so the Eucharistic elements are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. And so if you've ever attended a Catholic mass, uh, remember we, we talked before and in in every church, and especially in a Roman Catholic church, the furniture is very important. Um, when you go, you see a massive altar, and we've talked about this before. What happens on an altar? A sacrifice. Right? That's what altars are. Uh, that's why we don't refer to the front of the church as the altar. We have, we have the pulpit, we have a table, generally, and uh, in Reformed churches, the most important furniture that you have represents word and the table, the word being preached and the people of God communing with Christ together at the table. In Roman Catholicism, the most important element of what they do is to do this, uh, and we talked about this last time, so there's quibbles over the language, but essentially the re-sacrifice of Christ on the altar. And it's a huge element right there. And so when the priest comes and he goes through the, the ritual, um, and literally, and I'm not, I'm not being funny here, a part of the Latin mass is that he pronounces hocus pocus, and when he says that, the elements are uh, supposedly transforming now uh, in, their, uh, in their substance. They're changing from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And in the mass, you hear a bell ring, and that's when that is supposedly happening. Um, and so... There, there's a lot that goes into that. You know, these things are reserved for later on because once they transform, you obviously can't throw away the body and the blood of Christ. You have to reserve it. And so the little, uh, little dollhouse-looking uh, piece of furniture behind the altar, it gets stored in there. And if you've been to a mass, you'll see when people walk down the aisle before they take their seat, they prostrate and make the sign of the cross. Uh, and they're doing that toward the body and blood of Christ that's stored in the little, the little house. That's what that's there for. Um, and so it's not the image of Christ on the wall or the altar itself. It's because they believe that Christ's blood and body are stored in that uh, in that little uh, that little hut. Um, so that's sort of what's going on. That's the ritual behind it, and um, and this is this is the idea behind it that the elements have been transformed. The Lutherans, uh, Martin Luther, denied this idea of transubstantiation but not entirely in that he believed in a literal presence of Christ as well. Uh, whoops. 
So the idea of consubstantiation is that Christ's body and blood are present and fused with the bread and the wine, sometimes called the implantation theory of the Eucharistic presence of Christ. And so Christ's body and blood are ontologically bonded with and they stand alongside the bread and the wine. In other words, this is the doctrine that teaches in the Lord's Supper, the bread remains bread, and the wine remains wine, but that with any uh, time that the elements are consecrated, the true body and blood of Christ are communicated to the recipients. And it differs in that the substance itself in the elements are not being transformed. So they're being fused with Uh, these elements, but the elements themselves are not being transformed. And sometimes you'll hear it described as the body and blood of Christ are above and under and beside and all of these ways of describing it. And so when you partake, you are partaking of the literal blood and body of Christ, but not in the elements themselves, but fused with those elements. So it's a slight variation, but this is uh, the general Lutheran understanding. The two spiritual presence views are a real spiritual presence, and this was the idea uh, of the Reformed um, during the Reformation and on through and today and uh, in our church and uh, as taught in our confession. Um, And that is that there is no bodily presence of Christ, there's no physical presence of Christ, but his spiritual presence is real in these elements. We think it is very dangerous to look at the elements and reduce it merely to an act of commemorating Christ's death. That we would just say this is only something we do to remember the death of Christ and it has no other spiritual relevance. It is a gracious gift of God. And secondarily, it is an act of remembrance. So the Lord's Supper is primarily a divinely appointed means to strengthen the faith of believers, like all of the other means of grace. Preaching, praying, singing, baptism, all of these are means of grace that are intended to strengthen the faith of believers, and the Lord's Supper is among them. But we do believe in the true spiritual presence of Christ in these elements. There's also the commemorative view, and that was, uh, that was the view of Zwingli, and we'll get into this a little bit and some of the disagreements about that, but the idea being that the Lord's Supper is purely commemorative, although Christ is spiritually present in the faith of the believer. And so what tends to happen in the commemorative view, and many of you may have come from churches where the Lord's Supper is observed maybe once a quarter, maybe twice a year, maybe only once a year. Um, and, uh, and generally in those churches, uh, there's, there's no real spiritual benefit other than the commemorating of what Christ has accomplished. And so the regularity of the Lord's Supper is, uh, is not uh, a significant issue. Whereas in many Reformed churches, you see the Lord's Supper being observed weekly, or every other week, or once a month. I've never seen it uh, less uh, frequent than once a month. Um, 
as we do here. So these are the four views. You have two physical presence views. You have two uh, spiritual presence views. And among these, the real spiritual presence of Christ is what our confession teaches and what we hold to. All right, paragraph six, we go into the nature of the Lord's Supper. And here's what our confession says. That doctrine which maintains, and again, it's getting into transubstantiation, a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason. It overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. A very strong statement. Now this is a lengthier and of course more direct rebuttal of this doctrine of transubstantiation. It was refuted in part in paragraphs two, four, and five, and here uh, is an entire paragraph dealing with it. So again, the idea being that the ordinary bread and ordinary wine, once consecrated by the priest, lifted up, prayed over, hocus pocus, bell rings, now all of a sudden the substance change uh, to a, a supernaturally becoming Christ's body and his blood. So there is a physical presence or a literal presence of Christ in the supper. The bread and the wine continue to appear as bread and wine. However, Roman Catholic um, doctrine teaches that the substance of that bread and wine has been changed. So where do we come with this doctrine? Well, Thomas Aquinas, uh, the sort of leading theologian of Roman Catholic theology, he borrowed a philosophical principle from the philosopher Aristotle that provided the doctrinal justification for the bread and wine being transformed even though they remain uh, to appear as they are. And so Aristotle's uh, uh, philosophical formulation established the difference between what is called the substance or the essence of a thing, in other words, what makes it to be what it is, and the accidents of the same thing. In other words, the external qualities that are perceived. And so the accidents are the things that we see, the bread and the wine, but the substance is that which makes it what it is. And so sort of this internal reality of it. And so Aristotle suggests that every object has accidents and substance. And so there's this surface perception but then there's a deeper reality. And so one way to think about that is if, if, I, uh, if I look at someone, I can determine uh, this is a man, right? So that's the, that is the accidents. I see the physical characteristics of a man, I can determine this is a man. But the substance would be that, uh, the idea of who that man is, his personality, his character, his thoughts, his beliefs, his ideas, all of these kinds of things. And so uh, there's a distinction to be made. And so Aquinas took that idea from Aristotle and put it into this doctrinal formulation with regard to the Lord's Supper. 
And so there's this surface perception, but there's a deeper reality. Now Aquinas proposed that when the bread and wine are consecrated by the priest, the substance is transubstantiated or changed into the real body and the real blood of Christ, while the accidents remain the same. In other words, before consecration, the substance and the accidents are both bread and wine, but after the consecration, the substance supernaturally becomes uh, what the accidents are not. And so here's what their catechism teaches. At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine that by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit become Christ's body and blood. Faithful to the Lord's command, the church continues to do in his memory and until his glorious return, what he did on the eve of his passion. He took bread, he took the cup filled with wine. The signs of bread and wine become, in a way surpassing understanding, the body and blood of Christ. Now, all of the major reform confessions reject this unbiblical teaching. And our confession follows, as I mentioned before, the Westminster and the Savoy, utilizing identical language in doing so. Again, it states that the doctrine of transubstantiation is repugnant not to Scripture alone. So the Bible itself says that heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words... Where is the body and blood of Christ, the actual body and blood of Christ? Well, he's in heaven, right? And so he cannot be divided a countless number of times all around the world whenever the mass is performed. The problem with claiming that Christ's actual body and blood are present present in the accidents of the bread and wine is that it attributes divine omnipresence, in other words, the idea that Christ is everywhere at all times, that God is everywhere at all times, it attributes divine omnipresence to Christ's human nature contrary to uh, the, uh, the findings at the Council of Chalcedon and the orthodox che- uh, teaching of what we call the hypostatic union, that there is a distinction to be made between the two natures of Christ, his, his human nature and his divine nature. And we, we considered this last week during the Lord's Supper, that Christ is 100% man, he is 100% God. These two natures do not intermingle, right? There's not, a, there's not sort of a borrowing from one or the other, but, but they are, are two distinct and uh, very important and inseparable, indissoluble natures of Christ. And so what this teaching does, however, is it attributes a divine attribute, that of omnipresence, to, a, uh, to Christ's human nature, which is to intermingle uh, the two natures of Christ. And so the Roman Catholic Church sought to remedy this contradiction by uh, explaining what they called the communicatio idiomatum, or the idea that the divine nature of Christ 
communicated information from the mind of God to Christ's human nature and then transferred divine attributes to the human nature to include that of omnipresence. Now, you might ask where this comes from. It comes from whoever made it up. <laughs> it's not in the Bible, <laughs> right? This was, uh, this was a papal de- decree at some point, and again, uh, really um, based on the teaching of Aquinas. And so, while it is true that Christ's divine nature is omnipresent, it is a confusion of the two natures of Christ to assume that his humanity can also be omnipresent. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a true human nature. And nothing in the Bible supports this Catholic conclusion. And so the Heidelberg Catechism rightly concludes in question 47 that with respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. So the distinction of natures is vitally important. And on that issue alone, the doctrine of transubstantiation is eliminated, even with uh, sort of made-up ideas about how one is communicating with the other and sort of handing it over for this particular purpose. So, beyond the biblical and theological argument, the confession declares that transubstantiation is contrary even to common sense and reason. The Roman Catholic Catechism acknowledges this. It says that in this sacrament are the true body of Christ and his true blood is something that cannot be apprehended by the senses. And so... Relying on the teaching of Thomas Aquinas, they conclude, but only by faith which relies on divine authority. Now, basic principles of hermeneutics demand that any interpreter of Scripture asks, what would the original audience understand when these words were said or when they were written and they read them. And so in this instance, when Jesus said, this is my body, would the disciples at the Passover meal reasonably assume that Jesus was giving them a part of his actual body or that the substance of the bread has accidents that were Christ's actual body? Common sense and reason is what our confession refers to, which was actually, as a side note, which is a very brilliant way of stating this because uh, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and of Thomas Aquinas, um, they rely heavily on this idea that we can determine the things of God through common sense and reason. That reason uh, really holds a very, very high place in Catholic dogma. And so they use that very thing to uh, refer to this. But common sense and reason would lead to the emphatic conclusion that by no means would this have been anyone's understanding. And so it is, it is only in the theological imagination of the Roman Catholic Church that transubstantiation can be substantiated, not from sound biblical principles of interpretation. And so 
common sense and reason are reliable enough to draw this conclusion that Jesus need not state explicitly that the bread and the wine are not his actual body and blood. The confession also states that transubstantiation overthrows the nature of the ordinance. Back in paragraph two, it tells us that the ordinance is not any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick and the dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all. And so this doctrine of transubstantiation completely alters the true meaning of the Lord's Supper and changes it from something other than what it was intended to be. And so in most Reformed churches, the uh, sort of the, the pinnacle of the gathering of God's people in worship is the preaching of the word of God. As you move along in your time of worship, we come to the preaching of the word of God. Now, some, actually Calvin, John Calvin actually believed that it was the Lord's Supper that was uh, the, the pinnacle, but it only came after the preaching of the word. That the preaching of the word was preparation uh, for us to commune with Christ and to commune with one another in the Lord's Supper. He believed the Lord's Supper was uh, something of a, a covenant renewal. That each time we come to the table, we're renewing our covenant with Christ and with one another. So I'm very sympathetic to that view and that understanding um, this idea that uh, the Lord's Supper is sort of, uh, we, we've, we've sang together, we've prayed together, we've read the word together, we've heard the preaching of the word together, and now we celebrate together in receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper as we commune with Christ. And so uh, in Roman Catholic teaching, and you see this in Lutheran teaching as well, really, you come to the conclusion that everything that happens prior to the partaking of the elements is, it's not really all that important. And hence, why so much of it is simply done uh, without people sitting there knowing what's going on. It's a lot of times the priest uh, sort of mumbling the prayers to himself. Uh, Depending where you are, it may be in a language other than your own. And so you wouldn't even know it anyway. A Latin mass uh, is, is still practiced today. And so uh, it's only when we come to these elements and then in the receiving of the elements, we talked about this last time. Again, many of you saw this on Friday. Uh, most of the communicants, those partaking of it, only take the bread and not the wine um, and we, we talked about why that was last time. And so there's a reservation of some of these elements. Um, <clears throat> so all of this, finally the paragraph concludes that transubstantiation has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. Numerous festivals, rituals, and traditions have been established in Roman Catholicism as a result of this false teaching, accompanied by many blasphemous and fanciful tales of the supposed power of the Eucharist to provide miraculous outcomes. It is superstition. And there's no other way to state it. It is superstition. Um, 
and uh, these elements are reserved. And so when, when they're taken by the priest, often um, they'll go to visit the sick at the hospital or before someone dies, whatever it is, to give them these elements because of this idea. Well, this is Christ's body and blood. And so you need this before you die. Um, all superstitious. And we talked about some of those superstitions like adoration. Remember, uh, people will sit and stare at the elements. They will adore the elements or they're paraded around for people to see um, because this is the body and blood of Christ. I know it just looks like a round wafer and and a metal cup with wine in it, but trust us, it's something else. Um, And that's sort of the idea. So Paragraph six, a very strong rebuke against this teaching. Paragraph seven, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. It says, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present in the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Okay, so this is explaining how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to us. Even though paragraph two states that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's sacrifice, it is also more than a memorial in another sense. Now, often Baptists are accused of holding to a Zwinglian view of the Lord's Supper, but this paragraph puts that to rest. The reason we're accused of that so often is because there are some Baptists who hold to that. Generally, um, it's not across the board, but in many Southern Baptist churches today, for example, you will see this view. It's, uh, It's a memorialist view. And so uh, most often the Lord's Supper is celebrated quarterly, but certainly not monthly or any more frequent than that. Um, the General Baptists, uh, Arminian Baptists, um, they generally hold this view. And so that's why we're often lumped in with that. Uh, but we do believe that the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. And so what is the Zwinglian view? Well, Ulrich Zwingli he taught that the body of Christ was present in the supper only by the contemplation of faith. And he believed that partakers of the supper feed upon Christ by faith that we, quote, we may live in and through him a life pleasing to God, holy and therefore eternal and blessed, and that we who partake of one bread in the Holy Supper may be among ourselves one bread and one body. In other words, what he's saying is there is no presence of Christ, but Christ is contemplated and brings believers to greater faithfulness toward God and greater communion with other believers. So we wouldn't outrightly reject everything he's saying. He's not entirely wrong here, I just think he doesn't go quite far enough. But Zwingli believed that the supper is a sign that points backward and forward. We talk about that sometimes. The the Lord's Supper is a reminder of what God has done in the death of Jesus Christ, but it also points forward to the great heavenly marriage feast of the Lamb that believers await as the bride and bridegroom are one without 
the hindrances of the world. So on those issues, particular Baptists would have uh, no disagreement. It is the spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper as a reality that Zwingli misses. Now the Swiss Confession of Faith, the first Helvetic Confession of 1536, that it was uh, an affirmation of Zwingli's ideas of the Lord's Supper. The position has since been called memorialism, even though many have tried to refute that Zwingli and the signers of this confession were really articulating the meal being a anything uh, other than a means of remembering what Christ has done and nothing else. Now Zwingli believed that Christ was present not physically, but in the hearts of believers who partook of the elements. And for him, to partake of the Lord's Supper is to put one's faith in Christ. And so he compared the sacrament to a wedding ring that seals the marriage union between Christ and the believer. And so Zwingli concluded that the Lord's Supper was a sacred feast at which Christ's death was commemorated and contemplated in faith and in which Christians enjoy fellowship with one another. And so essentially... It is something that is happening horizontally. In other words, it's just about what we're doing here as the church together and in our hearts by faith. There's really no vertical element here between us and God. It was a sign signifying something that is to be contemplated and remembered. But it's not a means of grace and most certainly not a means by which, and we do agree with this, the actual body and blood of Christ are being imbibed. Now, the particular Baptists and the Reformed in general first identified that the benefits of the Lord's Supper belong to worthy receivers. The Baptist Catechism of Faith, question 104, says that for one to be a worthy receiver, it is required that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. So, once determining that one is a worthy partaker of the Lord's Supper, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So, What the particular Baptists were saying is we're rejecting all of the physical presence views, transubstantiation and consubstantiation. We're going further than the Zwinglian or memorialist view. And we're saying, yes, it is that, but it is more in that we spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified. And so when when believers partake of the elements of bread and wine, they do so by faith. And so the physical act of eating and drinking is not the primary focus of the supper, but rather the inward work of the Holy Spirit to apply the blessings of the Lord's Supper to the believer's life, which is, it's a means of grace, which is the grace of God. And so, In doing this, the believer feeds upon Christ crucified and the benefits of his death. In other words, the believer is truly communing with Christ himself, with whom the believer is united by faith. 
And so anyone who partakes of the elements of the supper should not focus primarily on the elements themselves other than to understand what they represent, but should instead understand that the elements are, uh, are intended to point to Christ in heaven and they serve as a delivery system, if you will, that God utilizes by the power of the Holy Spirit to further encourage, strengthen, nourish, grow, and stir the Christian's heart to greater acts of faithfulness. And so in this sense, Christ is spiritually present in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and not just in memory, but certainly not physically. I hope that makes sense. There's a lot to, lot to take in there. All right, finally, uh, paragraph eight, very quickly, the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. This paragraph says, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Now, uh, just one quick thought on how this relates to the previous paragraph. Remember, the scriptures say that to eat and drink of these elements in an unworthy manner is to bring further judgment onto yourself. That's what our paragraph is stating, um, simply referring to what the scriptures say. If there was really no spiritual significance in the Lord's Supper other than that it was simply a memorial to remember something Christ did, um, how would there be any sort of reality to this eating and drinking judgment on oneself? Right, it's something. It's something more than a memory. In that, there, it really does do something for the believer as a means of grace. And so, if I'm partaking of it in an unworthy manner, uh, but it's only a memorial, uh, there and there's no real vertical element to it, then what what do I really have to be concerned about? But if if we understand this to be a means of grace and the spiritual presence of Christ, there is something of that uh, that we must consider. And so this final paragraph identifies that all ignorant and ungodly persons are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ. Now, this statement is contrasted with those who are implied to be unworthy receivers of the ordinance in paragraph 7. The difference is that an unworthy receiver can be a Christian who is not of the proper heart and mind to rightly receive the blessings of the Lord's Supper. And so that's someone who maybe they're under church discipline, maybe they're in the midst of a, an unreconciled conflict with a brother in Christ, um, maybe they have unrepentant sin that they refuse to repent of. Uh, so there's, there's various ways in which that can be the case. But this paragraph speaks of ignorant and ungodly persons, simply to say an unbeliever. And so for those who have no true faith in Christ, the Lord's Supper is of no benefit. And so they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ and are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against him, 
while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. The church has a responsibility to ensure that people are given instruction that if they are not Christians, to not partake of these elements. It is incumbent upon the minister who's administering the ordinance to um, to fence the table of the Lord's Supper. That happens in different ways, in different churches, but something needs to be done in order to warn unbelievers that to partake of the supper in, an, in their unbelief is not uh, just an act that comes without any consequence. The confession repeats the words of Paul, whoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. The Lord's Supper is only for Christians and is dishonored when unbelievers partake of it. While an unbeliever may not take seriously the warnings of the scriptures, why would they concerning the taking of the elements in an unworthy manner? The church with concern for that person's soul ought to withhold the elements from those who do not exhibit true faith in Christ, lest the judgment of God fall upon them. The biblical warning is clear, and the confession takes that warning very seriously. All right, that's it for chapter 30. We've done it. Um, We're out of time. I was going to say, I'll take questions, but we, we don't have time. I wish I had time for some questions if there are any. I'm sure that raises some. Uh, many of you, perhaps, uh, I know a lot of you have, uh, you grew up in Roman Catholicism and you've uh, witnessed a lot of the things I've talked about. Maybe you never knew what they were, why they were doing what they were doing. So hopefully this was helpful. There's a lot more that can be said. Uh, we just have a short amount of time to say it. So, um, so hopefully that helped, and hopefully as we come to the Lord's Supper table next time, you will have an even greater understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it, and to enjoy the benefits of it all the more. So let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for this day. And thank you for the gift of all of our means of grace that you have provided for us. We do pray that you help us to have a true understanding of what you have provided and why you have provided it and how to use these, uh, these various means appropriately and properly for your glory and for our spiritual good. And so we pray now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for worship, as we come to receive various means of grace, that you would bless them, that you would help us to focus our hearts and our minds upon you, that you would be glorified in our midst. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.